right, we're back in Ephesians today. One more here before uh, Resurrection Sunday in chapter 4, if you want to follow along, though it'll be on the screen as well. And this kind of little two-part series, last week we uh, began talking about these five traits that, uh, that really do please God. In fact, there are five things that uh, when Paul was thinking about all that God had done for us, the first five things that came to his mind were these five things that we're talking about. And uh, we uh, uh, picked it up in chapter 4, verse 1, and this is Paul. Again, he is writing this letter in prison, chained to a Roman guard. And he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, how do we live a life that is worthy of the calling? Because we all, all have a calling in our life if we're in Jesus. And that calling is, is to be a part of the kingdom, is to be light and salt, is to, to reflect Jesus. Uh, how do we live a life that is worthy of that calling? And again, chapter 4, if you remember, is a bit of a, a division in the book. The first three chapters are, are focused on all that God has done for us. And then in chapter 4, he begins to talk about how we respond to all that God has done to us. And so, coming out of this, this idea where Paul talked about this identity we have in Jesus, this uh, that we are his children, that we are forgiven, that we are filled with grace and power and blessing and on and on and on. He says, how do we respond to that? How do we live a, a life that is worthy of all that? And you might think that Paul would start with saying, you know, you got to sell all your money and give it to the poor. Or you got to, you know, do something big by moving to another country or you, know, you got to do something gigantic for God. He doesn't start with that. He starts with character issues. He starts with the heart. We cannot underestimate the importance of character. It is vital for Christ followers. And so he says, this is the first thing that comes to his mind when he's thinking about responding to the gospel. He says, be completely humble. Just be humble. Uh, we talked about the freedom of just living a life that is a humble life where you can rejoice when other people do better than you. You can celebrate other people's victories. You can bless other people when their ministries are doing better than you. And you're just, being humble is celebrating other people. And gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That, again, that we make room, as we talked about last week, for each other's faults. That I have little quirks that maybe tick you off, and you might have some, and we bug each other sometimes. But because we our followers of Christ, we bear with one another in love. And so those are the first four. And today we're going to talk about the fifth, which maybe not is a, is a character, but maybe an attitude or a heart. The idea is having a heart for unity. Uh, unity is something that Paul first mentions as a response uh, to the gospel. And so he goes on and says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That unity, Paul is just saying, this is one of the ways we respond, that we live a life that is worthy of the calling, is that we make every effort to live in unity with our brothers and sisters. This is something that pleases God a lot. As we talk about things that please God, Romans 15 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, stop there. I mean, if you need encouragement, you know where it comes from. It's God who gives encouragement. 
give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. That when we are walking in unity in our marriages, when we are walking in unity in our families, when we're walking in unity in our church, when we are walking in unity with other churches, when we are walking in unity with the, the global church worldwide, this is something that brings praise to God. And just as parents, when, when, when your kids are getting along, you're just like, this is awesome. When your kids are not getting along, you're like, this is bad. And when God looks at the global church and sees them fighting over different things and not walking in unity, that does not bring praise to God. Uh, God died not just for you, not just for our church, but he died for every single person in this planet. And all that turned to him, he wants them to walk in unity. And this requires those first four things that we talked about. Humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. In fact, uh, Jeremy Meyer said this, unity and diversity truly is possible within the family of God but only if we recognize something first about unity. Rather than seeking unity, we seek love. Love is the key to unity. Love forgives when we are wronged. Love shrugs off differences of opinion. Love overlooks disagreements about behavior. When we truly love people, differing political opinions and theological persuasions become enjoyable topics for conversations rather than issues for division and strife. That when you live in maturity of humility and gentleness and love, uh, you can disagree with another Christ follower and have beautiful conversations of disagreement rather than divisions and splitting and I don't want anything to do with you. This unity he's talking about comes out of being completely humble, completely gentle, patient, bearing with one another of love and having this heart for unity. This was on Jesus' heart. When before Jesus died on the cross, as we come towards Easter, uh, he prayed for certain things that were really upon his heart. And one of those things was for unity among the followers of Jesus. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me. That, that's, that's all of us through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And this is a crazy ridiculous prayer. He's not just saying, I want all the, my followers to be one. He says, I want them to be one just as the triune God is one. Just as I am in you and you are in me, I want, that's, that's the kind of unity I want to see amongst my people. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. He has given this glory, the same glory God gave, gave Jesus. It says he gives to us. Why? Why is he given all this glory? That we may be one as they are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And he mentions here twice that this is one of the signs to the world that this is how that pe people are going to know about Jesus is actually through unity. There's a lot of power in unity. Because we live in a world where sometimes races don't get along and socioeconomic classes don't get along and, and there's fighting in marriages and stuff. And, and if people can walk in here and see people of all different kinds of flavors getting along and loving each other, people go, wow, there's something different about this place. 
It's because of our love and humility. It is to be a sign to the world of the fact that Jesus is real. And so Paul actually says here that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is not just a little bit of effort. This is not just something that you can maybe think about on the sidelines if you have time. Paul says, in response to the gospel, I want you to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another love, and I want you to make every effort to keep the unity. And we can just ask right there, how are you doing at walking in unity with other Christians, other churches, uh, the global church? Are you making every effort to walk in unity with other followers of Jesus. Uh, and this is very important. I mean, whenever we see disunity in the Bible, it is always confronted, trying to be solved, to make every effort. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Paul is saying, division is not okay. That you need to make every effort to walk in unity. Or Philippians 4, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Obviously, we're having a conflict. Paul said, plead with you to walk in unity. That as followers of Jesus, one of the ways we respond to the gospel is by making every effort we possibly can to be walking in unity with each other. In fact, when there is someone causing division, it's actually quite harsh. Uh, uh, Paul to Titus says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's how serious Jesus is about unity. Now, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity. And if there's someone causing division, you warn them once, twice, and then you just, you just because unity is that important to the body of Christ. Uh, Division, conflict are actually mentioned as acts of the flesh. Galatians 5, the acts of the flesh or sin, sin are obvious. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, idolatry, and witchcraft. And then a whole list of things that come with disunity. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of raid, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions are all in the midst when there is disunity amongst in a marriage or in a family or in a church or between churches. Uh, we're not to be living under the acts of the flesh, but actually to be living under the fruit of the Spirit, which he goes on and says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That we are to make every effort to keep unity. Uh, this isn't an optional thing. This isn't, well, I just really don't like that kind of church. I just really don't like that kind of Christian. I just don't really like that person sitting next to me, and I'm just okay with it. You can't be okay with that. We are to make every effort to live in unity. And this unity is centered around the Spirit. To make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is something that bonds us together, and that's the bond of peace. And that bond of peace, his name is Jesus. Uh, Paul mentioned this. In Ephesians chapter 2, for he, Jesus, is our peace. He, Jesus is our peace. This is who we unify around. We don't unify around our flavor of Christianity. We don't unify around my little, little system and all my little intricacies or whatever. We unify around Jesus. That every single person who loves Jesus and trusts Jesus 
is a child of God. And that is what unifies us is Jesus. Now, for unity to happen, it means our identities must be securely in Christ. If our identity as a church, if your identity as an individual is not securely in Jesus, you will struggle with conflict. You will struggle with conflict in your marriage. You will struggle with conflict and disunity amongst your friends or your peer groups. You will struggle with unity in the church. You will definitely struggle with unity between churches if your identity is not solely in Jesus. What makes us one and what Paul is saying why we need to be one is because we all follow Jesus. There's lots of different kinds of churches, but we all follow Jesus and we're unified around him. But if our identities are not in Jesus, but in something else, it, it just causes disunity and conflict. Timothy Keller, a great preacher, said this. Our need for worth is so powerful, and it's the idea that our need for identity, need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think ourselves as highly religious. In other words, all of us get our life somewhere. Doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, you, everyone is trying to get life from somewhere. Some people try to get it from their money. Some people try to get it from trying to be famous. Some try to get it from being popular. Some try to get it from, you know, having everybody say, wow, you're the coolest person. Some people get it even who come to church from places other than Jesus. And sometimes we struggle with this. We will we'll sometimes try to grab our identity from other places. And if we do, it tends to lead to conflict. For instance, uh, within Christianity, we can begin to find our identity in our flavor of Christianity other than Jesus. You see, if my identity is in Jesus, I can meet someone from a different flavor of Christianity and get along with them just fine because my identity is in Jesus, their identity is in Jesus, I'm getting my life from Jesus, they're getting their life from Jesus, and even if we disagree on some finer theological points, we can still give and receive love. But if my identity is in my brand of Christianity, my certain flavor of Christianity, and I meet someone else whose identity is in a different brand, all of a sudden there's conflict. Because that person is challenging where I get life, and they're challenging where they get life, and it just results in conflict. We're not called to have unity in our flavor of Christianity. We're called to have unity in Jesus. This is what brings us together. This is what holds us together is our unity in Christ. And just psychologically speaking, we will naturally push anybody away who threatens our identity. And so if someone begins to threaten our flavor of Christianity, we will just naturally, without even realizing, just begin to push them away. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to see them that much. You know, I just don't want to hang around them with them because they're threatening where I get life from. We get our life from Jesus. And you know, Jesus can't be threatened. And so if even if someone threatens Jesus, it doesn't hurt me because Jesus is God of this universe, right? We get our life from Jesus. And if you're here today and you feel that you're not living life to the full, that there's something missing in your life, it's found in Jesus. He's come to give you life and life to the fullest. And so sometimes we can get our identity in our flavor of Christianity. Sometimes we can find our identity in our desire to be right. The more important than Jesus is that I get my life from my rightness. And so if someone challenges my rightness, they have a little different theological opinion than me, uh, then, then all of a sudden where I get my life from is being challenged. I'm going to push them away or I'm going to fight them. I'm going to argue with them until I'm right because that's where my, I get my identity from. Some people have a real hard time 
just with other opinions, other ideas, because sometimes we can get our, our identity from what is, is right. Again, Timothy Keller said this, idolatry, or that is finding your identity in other things other than Jesus, functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, they trust in the rightness of their views, uh, which makes them feel superior. And there's nothing bad to say about doctrine. I mean, I love doctrine. I took my master's in biblical studies. I, I love theological conversations, and all of us should love theological conversations. But it means if you're walking with your identity in Christ, and you're walking as a mature believer... You meet someone else's identity in Christ and your identity in Christ, yet you're radically different on, you know, non-essential theological issues. You should be able to sit down and have a beautiful conversation and say, you know, I think, well, I don't really agree with that. And, and you shouldn't be a reason for splitting or I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. Or just, I don't want anything to do with that kind of church because they got that view. Our unity must be in Jesus. It is found in Jesus. And when your identity is in Jesus, that just builds and goes a long way with building unity. Christina Cleveland uh, said this, research conducted by Fien, uh, Fien and Spencer and others suggest that those who uh, uh, degrade other groups are doing so at least partly because their identity is threatened. According to this research, the very presence of divisions in the body of Christ indicates that many of us are still fighting the identity wars of our adolescence. That is that often when you're going through adolescence, you're trying to find, you know, who am I and where's my identity? You're looking for that, and sometimes it causes conflict, and yet often in the church, we can be searching for identity that's found in Jesus. If your identity falls outside of Jesus onto other things, you will just find yourself having a really hard time with unity within our church, with unity between churches, unity with other churches in other countries or places across this world. And so identity is really important. So we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he says this, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you know there is only one body of Christ? And a lot of us say, yep, but you know, a lot of times we don't live that way. We're like, actually, I think there's about five bodies of Christ out there, and our body is really good, but those other bodies, I don't want anything to do with those bodies out there because they're just lame. Those are like the, the, you know, the horrible sister or brother out there. There is only one body of Christ. Do you know that every single person who loves and trusts Jesus on this planet is a part of the same body we are? Whether in Rwanda or Egypt or, you know, USA or Mexico, there is one body. And when Paul is talking about unity, he's not just talking about unity between a marriage or a family or a church. He's talking about unity of the body of Christ. That all Christians who follow and love Jesus are to be walking in unity because we all find our identity in the exact same spot, even though we have lots of different theological opinions on non-essential issues. There's only one body. And so 
when you meet other Christians who maybe make you uncomfortable, you know what? They're part of your body. They're part of the body of Christ. And just because someone makes you uncomfortable doesn't always mean it's wrong. A lot of times we equate, that makes me uncomfortable with, that's wrong. Sometimes making you uncomfortable is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. There's only one body. It's all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, just as a body, the one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one body, there's only one capital C church, and we're to walk in unity within the body of Christ. And he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. First Corinthians chapter 1, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. And then, and then Paul asks, is Christ divided? Are there like four bodies of Christ out there? There is one. One body of Christ, one Lord, one Spirit, one Baptist. And baptism, we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And sometimes we're going to radically disagree. And you know what? I radically disagree with some of you. And some of you radically disagree with me on minor theological issues. But you know what? We're to walk in unity together because we're about Jesus. That's our main focus is Jesus. Scholar uh, Klein Snodgrass said this. We know what is required. We are to live, supposed to be in unity. We are not asked to be like other Christians or agree with them, but to recognize that we are one with them and share the same Lord and the same benefits. We may not write people off any more than one part of the body can dismiss another part. You can't write off another church. You can't write off another movement. You can't write off a church in Australia. They're, they're a part of our body. We may not write off uh, uh, people off any more than one part of the body can dismiss another part. What this text underscores is that unity is not some non-essential, some afterthought, or some byproduct of the faith, but it is at the heart of of Christianity. The revelation that came in Christ was a revelation about unity. If we do not proclaim unity, we have not proclaimed the gospel. If we do not live in unity, we have missed the gospel's impact. The very gospel was to bring Jews and Gentiles, the most radically different people in the planet, together in unity. And if the gospel is to bring radically different people like Jews and Gentiles together, then how much more should the gospel bring together all those who love and follow Jesus. This is not some non-essential. This is almost an essential of Christianity that we live and make every effort to walk in unity. And every part of the body of Christ is needed. You know, sometimes we say, I want nothing to do with that church over there. I want nothing to do with that movement. I want nothing to do with that Christian over there. We, we can't do that. If they love and trust Jesus and have a heart for Jesus, they are a part of the one body of Christ. And the Bible says that every single member of the body of Christ is needed. Even if they're radically different than you. If they're part of the body of Christ, every part is needed. Uh, there are many parts, but one body. And often we think about this as local church, but this, this applies to the global church. There's lots of different flavors of Christians here. Lots of different flavors of church in this world. But they're all needed. There are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body, whether it be another Christian, another church, another movement of Christianity, that seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Every part of the body of Christ is needed. Uh, some parts of the body of Christ look radically different. There's parts of the body of Christ that really make me uncomfortable. But you know, they love Jesus. I love Jesus. I can have unity with them, even though we radically disagree. And you know what? I could probably learn something from them, just as they might be able to learn something from me. And this is why there's got to be dialogue between Christians. Because if you write off a whole group, a whole movement, sometimes you just shut yourself off from growing. You learn a lot sometimes by other Christians. Just as I can learn from you, you can learn from me. We can learn from what God is doing in this group, and I can learn from what God is doing in this group because we have, we're part of the same one body in Jesus. Now, every part of the body is good, and this means, uh, this doesn't mean that everybody's got to be the same. Uh, that different in the body of Christ is actually a good thing. Uh, some people think that unity means every Christian got to be exactly the same, that every Christian's got to agree on every, uh, you know, 100 points of doctrinal issues. No. Different is good. Centered on Jesus is an absolute must, but different is good. We're not all supposed to be the same. We're not all supposed to look the same. Uh, Paul says the body does not consist of one member but many. If the whole body were an eye, the whole body of Christ looked just like the Junction Church, that wouldn't be a good thing. If all of you look like me, that definitely wouldn't be a good thing, right? Where would the sense of hearing, if, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of uh, smell be? As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, whether it be a person or a church, perhaps a movement, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Again, there's only one church in this world, only one. Not four or five. We don't have the best one. We're, we're all a part of the body of Christ. Scholar Scott McKnight said, The church is a fellowship of difference and difference. The church is God's world-changing social experiment to bring unlikeness and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world. That's exactly what Jesus prayed. That our unity was to show the world what a loving bunch of people we are. That our unity is to show the world what God can do with a bunch of messed up people, and he can transform our hearts where we just are gracious towards one another. Now, a couple more notes here before we're done, which are helpful in understanding unity. And one is to recognize that naturally, all of us are what uh, you can call cognitive misers. That is, that your brains naturally want to file things as away as quickly as possible. It's just naturally how all of our brains work. And so, because our, our, our brains only have a certain amount of energy, and our, and our brain wants to save energy for important things, so if it comes across something, it'll immediately try to file it away so it doesn't have to think about it anymore. And this can be a good thing. And this can be a really, really bad thing. It can be good, for instance, if you're walking through the woods and you see a bear. 
I mean, you have a box for that. You know bears are unsafe and you got to do something. You're not sitting there, oh, what kind of animal is that every time? And you're trying to figure this out and, you know, should I pet this thing? You know it's been filed because you just put it in a filing cabinet. You know. It's helpful when you go into a restaurant. I mean, you meet the host. You kind of know what the host does. It comes and sits. They sit you. You don't have to like, what is this person's job and what are you doing? I mean, we file things away so we don't have to spend a lot of energy thinking about it. There's good in that. But it can also be really, really bad. And it can be really, really bad when it comes to church unity. Because the reason is, is that when you meet somebody, if they give you a negative impression, you will automatically just assume they're not a safe person, they're bad, they got horrible theology, and you will quickly file them away as, I don't want to talk to that person. You see a clip of you, something on YouTube of some crazy preacher, you'll quickly file them away, I don't want anything to do with them, I don't want to touch them, and just file them away. You can write people off. It's called stereotyping. How often do we judge someone's encyclopedia of their life by one page that we see? Uh, would you like someone to judge your whole life by one page that they saw? No. And we've got to treat others the same. And, uh, and the, the only way you can do this is you've got to recognize the self. That, that sometimes you meet somebody and, and you, just, you will quickly, your brain will quickly, I just don't want to think about the person, so I'm going to file them away. They're this kind of person, this kind of whatever. I don't want anything to do with them. You've got to fight that. Instead of being a cognitive miser, you need to be cognitively generous. In other words, say, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I want to read more than just one page of their life. I want to read at least, you know, a, a few chapters. I want, to, I want to see part of their encyclopedia before I begin to file them away. We, we all do this. They're cognitive misers, and it is a horrible thing when it comes to church unity and walking together. Because all of us here, without knowing it, have filed different movements, different churches, different groups, a way that we don't want to think about them anymore when we've just maybe judged the whole book of that movement or life or person by one single page we've seen. If you want people to judge you correctly, you need to respond and judge others correctly and fairly. If you hate it when people judge you by one little page that they've seen, then you've got to do the same for other people. Beware of being a cognitive miser. And, and all of us do this, and you just got to catch this sometimes and say, what am I doing? I'm cognitive mising. I cannot do this. Uh, Christina Cleveland said this, the mere act of categorizing or being a cognitive miser the mere act of categorizing Christian groups into smaller, uh, homogeneous groups that pit us against them leads to us to devalue, misperceive, and distance ourselves from them. Again, you will always distance yourself from things that threaten your identity. You will always distance yourself from something that you've quick, too quickly filed into your little cognitive miser box. And it creates disunity rather than unity. And lastly, and now we're done, it's to note that we have a natural tendency to focus on the negative more than the positive. And, and psychologists, they'll study this, and they just, they realize that we just naturally focus on negative things more than positive things. This is why someone can tell you ten amazing things about you. They tell you one negative thing, and your life is just exploded, right? You just can, that person is horrible, and you just focus on that one thing, even though they've said ten wonderful things. We're like that. And as a pastor, sometimes I see that in this church. I mean, you can have people here, and they love what's going on. All of a sudden, there's one negative thing, and all of a sudden, that becomes the focus, and they forget all the wonderful things that God has done and is doing. And just, I mean, we focus on the negative. And again, when you meet a new Christian, when you go to a new church, when you think about other churches, we tend to focus on the negative and instead of the positive. Uh, the Bible says we'll take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 
which means we give people the benefit of the doubt, which means we walk humbly. We ask questions if things confuse us. I mean, uh, again, we've got to watch this in our lives, that we will focus on negative rather than positive, just naturally. And again, we fight that. We fight being cognitive misers. And we realize that, hey, every single person that loves Jesus is a part of us. They're part of the one body of Christ. It doesn't matter if this church or the church is in Nelson or the church is in Africa or the states. We're all a part of one body. We, body, we look differently, but we're called to walk in unity. I invite the worship team up and uh, as we pray here. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, God, to die on the cross that we may have life. And God, I thank you that you have given life to so many people who follow you. Uh, God, that we have brothers and sisters all over this world, some of them who are being visited in Rwanda. God, we thank you for the diversity within the church that we can learn from how you're working in different movements in different ways. God, I thank you that you love every single one of your children. And I pray, God, you would teach us to walk in that same kind of love, that we would love our brothers and sisters, not only in this church, God, but every church and every uh, movement, God, that's of you in this world. God, we thank you that we hold the core values of, of Jesus who died and rose again and conquered the grave, that we hold the values, God, of life eternal. And in those we celebrate and those we rejoice. In Jesus' name.